Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 25. This week, we'll be sharing the second half of Amelia's excellent talk with Pritzker Prize winner, Kevin Roche. If you haven't listened to the first part, make sure to listen to the last week's episode. We'll also be discussing a popular item in the news this week, Patrick Schumacher's Facebook editorial in defense of stars and icons. Arkinex's post on that is at about 130 comments long, so it's been quite a popular item. This week's episode is graciously sponsored by BQE ArchiOffice, a time tracking and project management software built specifically for architects. I've got Ralph Fay, an architecture firm owner in Philadelphia and avid user of the software, on the phone to tell us a little bit about how he uses ArchiOffice in his practice. So your name's Ralph Fay, and could you tell me a little bit about the firm that you work at? Sure. We are a, I'm going to use the word small architectural firm, 10 or 12 people. Our work is primarily high design work. We do high-end residential work, restaurants, event spaces, shops. We're probably not the firm you're going to call if you need a parking garage. So when did you start using BQE and what made you choose that software? So BQE became, we became aware of BQE about the time that I started my firm 12 years ago. And I know that the software was maybe a little new at that point, but I had a brand new firm and had really no idea how to manage the time of my three-person staff in those days. And also, you know, get invoicing done and look professional. So we did look around at some options and we found the ArchiOffice system. And it really hit all the points that I needed at the time, which was track our projects, track our time, create invoicing, and help me with a little bit of projections. I was kind of new at it. Didn't really know a whole lot about how to do projections, but the ability of ArchiOffice to take our project budgets and also the time we were putting in helped me figure out how many people I needed. We've since grown to uh, 12 people since then. So how has it changed how you run the office? Well, ArchiOffice has far more abilities than even we or my staff know how to use. So as we become more familiar with its capabilities, we use more of what it offers. So we used to write our proposals in a a Word document and then save them on our uh, server. But we have begun to learn more things like we can create the format for that, but write it in the contact and tie all of the contacts and uh, contractors together. So we are much more focused on, because we have many more projects, much more focused on putting all the information for a project in one place. So we're making ArchiOffice that place. So as we're working on the project, we're storing uh, everything under the ArchiOffice. Our time's going in under ArchiOffice. Our scheduling is now being done in ArchiOffice and our projections. I am still a guy that draws by hand. I have many talented people that are far better on computers and CAD than I am. And even I am able to navigate the system well and get good use out of it. So it's very user-friendly. It is. And it updates when we have things that we'd like it to do, we let them know. And the next rollout, our needs are usually met. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story using the software. If you're interested to learn more about BQE ArchiOffice, go to bqe.com forward slash podcast and discover how ArchiOffice can help your firm increase efficiency and improve cash flow. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. How's everyone's week? Pretty good. Great. Welcome back from Peru, Paul. Thank you. It's it's very good to be back. And thank you for doing such an amazing job keeping the, the podcast going in my absence. It was a very different and very positive experience listening to the podcast, not knowing what to expect. I'm so glad it was a positive experience for you. <laughs> well, it was Aren't exciting. It was exciting. Normally when I listen to our podcast each week, I know every single word that's been said. You know, I've already gone over everything with our yeah. editor and it's basically the experience is just making sure that everything was cleaned up properly. But this time I felt like I was listening to one of my podcasts that I really enjoy listening to. And I had that kind of excitement, you know, it's like, what's going to happen next? What are they going to say next? You know, it's, it was, it was really good. It was enjoyable. That's great. That's really good to hear. Amelia did a very good job hosting. Thank you. Thank you very much. She always does an excellent job. It was kind of like a parallel universe for a little bit. It was like there was some missing aspect. It's very strange. Yeah, no, you did a great job. You always do. <laughs> well, thank you. We knew Paul was barely hanging on in some tropical beach somewhere. Not tropical, but like 
Some yeah. equivalently tropical. Remote. Yeah. I was Very uh, remote. I was way up in the north of Peru, close to the Ecuadorian border on the beaches of uh, Canoas Punta Sal. And the internet is pretty much non-existent there. We went to an internet cafe one night to just, you know, check on some emails. And it was pretty bad. I mean, it only cost us 25 cents, the equivalent of 25 cents for about 45 minutes. But the download and upload speed, everything around there is is satellite and it's extremely slow. So it wasn't really worth it, but it was nice. It was nice to just put the phone away and, and just use it occasionally as a camera for a change. Yeah. Yeah, that's a true vacation. <laughs> it is. Where was this internet cafe? How big is this city that you were in? It wasn't a city. Oh, really? Yeah, we flew from Lima to Tumbes. Tumbes is, it's considered a city, but it's just a larger collection of shacks. <laughs> it's very tropical. So, you know, people don't need to have that much shelter. So, you know, I think the shack typology could be, you know, not necessarily out of economic despair, but, you know, could also just be out of that's you know that's all they they really need but uh, there's a lot of fishing around there a lot of fishing villages we got there shortly after there was a lot of flooding so a lot of rice fields that were flooded bridges that were kind of flooded over and as a result the floods took a lot of trash and waste into the ocean which we came across while we were swimming. Hopefully it wasn't too toxic. The water looked really nice. It felt really nice. Oh, God. We, uh, it wasn't <laughs> going to keep us out of the ocean because there wasn't much else to do for a week. You scuba'd? Did you scuba and did you hike? Those are your things you like to do, right? I did not scuba because the only scuba operators were in uh, Mankara, which is a surf town about 30 minutes south of where we were. And it's uh, not the kind of place that I really would put much faith into a scuba operation. <laughs> because I mean, it's it's kind of like a even more ghettoized Venice Beach. It's just speckled with gift shops and ayahuasca trips. You know, it's very touristy. You could be dropped down there, and you could be in any of these like tropical tourist destinations all over the world. So I just decided to hang out with my family. We did a lot of paddleboarding, kayaking, body surfing. My kids became like fish swimming in huge Aww. waves and uh, eating amazing amazing locally caught fish prepared by locals. The most amazing ceviche I've ever had in my life. And uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, hanging around on a beach, swimming and eating and doing nothing is not a bad way to spend a week. Or two. <laughs> the other half was in was in Lima. Lima's a very big city. 10 million people. Wow. 10 million people, but made for like 500,000. Wow. Yeah. So the traffic in Lima is worse than the traffic that I've ever seen in my life. I've heard it is the worst in the world. I mean, driving the traffic on the streets in Lima is very similar to the way that people walk on the sidewalk in New York City. You just go where there's space there's absolutely no regard for lanes or for traffic lights or for stop signs. If somebody cuts you off while you're driving really fast, you slow down and let them cut you off. There's no honking that's going on. Everybody's insane. <laughs> but it works, right? It does work. Yeah, I don't know how emergency vehicles get around that city. I didn't see any, but I didn't see any accidents either. And everyone's driving, right? There's no underground public transit system. There's like these little buses you were talking talking to us about, like little... Uh, vans that just kind of pick you up and charge you whatever and get you from A to B. Yeah. The public transportation system in Lima is pretty much non-existent. There's very dangerous vans. One of the public city vans, it's like a bus, but very tiny, but it fits the same number of people as a bus. I thought it was funny in the back of the bus, there was two decals of like hands with middle fingers pointing up and it just said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a city bus for you in Lima. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter what city you're yeah. in. Yeah. But I was out of curiosity. I opened up my phone. I turned on Uber and Uber was there. Uh -huh. So I was Ubering around town. I mean, it was great because really? I didn't have any money on me. And Lima's a real cash kind of payment society. So if you just have a card, you're kind of out of luck. So Uber saved me. Are there um, motor scooters, like motorcycles, motor scooters, that kind of thing too? Very few. And I think it's because it's kind of a death wish yeah. driving. But as soon as you leave Lima, all of the cars and taxis are moto taxis, which are like motorcycle in front and like two yeah. wheels in the back with like a, yeah. a bench. That's the way it is in most of Peru. So there's a beautiful video. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. It went up not long ago, I think on City Lab, of like a big intersection in, I want to say it was in Phnom Penh, but that might just be because I have Cambodia on my mind. 
And it was like you described, there's no traffic laws, there's no lights, it's just this flow and it all works. Even though, you know, sometimes a bunch of motorcycles make it through and they stop all the bigger cars and then sometimes the bigger cars make it. And it's just, it's incredibly beautiful because it really does just flow steadily, even though it's not super fast. And it, it and it looks like if you tried to walk across it, you would die immediately. But um <laughs> It's yeah. very beautiful. I'll see if I can find it. And we can we can post it. There were streets like this that really did look like you would walk across and die, but there would be, you know, these young mothers with pushing their babies and strollers across yeah. these streets like a game of Frogger. And it was yeah. scary to watch. <laughs> but, you know, I think everybody has gotten the hang of it. So it yeah. does work, but it's not efficient. People don't like it. People that mm -hmm. have lived in other places say that it yeah. sucks. And it, I can see it does. Lima is a very interesting city. And it's been experiencing quite a lot of growth in the last decade. I would definitely encourage everyone to visit if possible. So while I was there last week, I had a great opportunity to visit an exciting new, yet-to-be-opened museum called Lugar Museo de la Memoria. The building's basically finished, but I think they're still trying to secure a curator. It's a very sensitive and controversial subject matter, basically addressing the two decades of terrorism and violence in the city and in the country from 1980 to 2000. And there's a lot of sensitivity to that. And it's uh, it's very controversial. A lot of emotion. Most of the people in the city very clearly remember that time. A lot of people believe the government is suppressing a lot of its own atrocities in this museum. But anyways, the museum is amazing. I got a tour of it unopened by Sandra Barkley from Barkley and Cruz. They started their practice in Paris. They're both from Peru. They do beautiful work. I've been in contact with Sandra to try to put together a little profile on their work on Archonnect, but their work is really stunning. She also took me to a house under construction in Lima, which was beautiful. Very, very beautiful. And utilizing kind of local building strategies, local kind of unique layout styles with their own distinctive architectural language. Do they still have a practice in France, did you say? Or are they bi-national now? They do have a satellite office in France, but they are based in Lima now, primarily. And where were they educated? In Lima. And actually, I believe they followed their mentor slash teacher in Lima mm -hmm. to Paris mm -hmm. and worked for him. That's what took them there. But they found a lot of success in France. It seems like a really amazing urban atmosphere to be in, given that it developed so quickly. But also you were telling us in the office earlier about the frequency of you see all these mid-century modern buildings everywhere and like just commonly and they're not really made a fuss of, but they're all over the place. Yeah. It, Lima is an architect's haven because, I mean, everywhere you go, there's this really unique mid-century modern architecture, kind of a parallel universe style of mid-century modernism compared to what we're used to here in the U.S. And there's a lot of brutalism. People really love their brutalist architecture in Lima. So there's a lot of brutalism from the 70s and even until today. Grafton Architects just is currently finishing up the UTEC campus, which I took a lot of photos of, which I could share in the show notes. It's very brutalist, quite nice, really imposing on a very strange fairly unusable site. And the museum that I visited, also another brutalist building. I mean, concrete is the primary building material in, in Peru. So that I'm sure contributes to that. But people really do appreciate brutalist style architecture. <laughs> what a lovely change from the United <laughs> States where we can't seem to tear it down fast enough. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's very cool. Sounds great. Yeah. You'll have to put some pictures up so we can see it. I will. Did you try any ayahuasca? You know, I've been planning on doing a proper ayahuasca session for many years. But each time I go down to Peru, I'm, I'm with my family and it's not really an appropriate time. There's a lot of visiting with family. And so, you know, I think I might go down there one of these days. A friend of mine down there recently did, or not recently, about 10 years ago, did a, a series of ayahuasca sessions. And he said that it was just the most positive, life-changing experience he's ever had. But he had, you know, a, a very highly respected shaman. And the thing with ayahuasca is that it's so popular and so common now that you don't know what you're taking. You don't know um, yeah. who the shaman is. It, it really comes down to who your guide is and um, how it's prepared and the whole experience. But it does seem like a really magical experience if you go in there with the right state of mind. Cool. <laughs> So maybe the next trip, the non-family trip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a trip within a trip. Right. Donna, what about you? How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I have not had a super interesting week. Just, you know, standard stuff. I had my birthday. That was, you know. Happy cool. birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yes, that was Saturday. What are you, 32? 48. <laughs> I, I don't believe it. 48. It feels good. It feels good. I'm enjoying growing older. 
I'm involved again in this little neighborhood development. I think I talked on the podcast a months ago about this neighborhood development that someone wanted to put five townhomes in our single family residential sort of neighborhood. And I totally supported the project, but the most of the neighbors hated it and it was shot down. And so now the developer has come back with a new proposal that's only three townhouses. And once again, I'm supporting it. And once again, the neighbors are just up in arms. They just can't. And it just reminds me how we in architecture, we've been to architecture school, we are so able to look at an existing condition and imagine it being very different. And Many people just don't have that training. And I do think it's a training. It's not just creativity. It's being trained to understand potential, basically, and to look at something existing and say, this could be better, this could be different. I just, I'm shocked at the sort of lack of imagination that it seems many of my neighbors have. So that's a little frustrating, but we'll see. Hopefully it'll go well. Have you thought about talking with them and trying to help them see the potential? I attempted to do that in one public meeting we had on the previous proposal and it didn't go well. And then we have a neighborhood social media website, of course. And I I talked a little about the diversity of styles that exists already on the block. There's some that are two-story. There's some that are craftsmen. There's some that are this and that. There's a little Spanish mission style house on the block like that. How eclectic can you get in Indiana? But they just won't know. I mean, part of the problem is they see it as it's a new contemporary style and everything currently is sort of historic looking, somewhat historic looking, and they just can't see any value in contemporary architecture. Just, you know, it looks blocky to them. So it's a little frustrating. So what is the neighborhood social media platform for this? Because those tend to be perfect shit stirs if you wanted to really get stuff up. Oh, they're terrible. Oh my God. It's called Nextdoor. It's a national website, Nextdoor. Okay. Yeah. They're across the country and every neighborhood has them. And yeah, Ken, you have them in Minneapolis. I'm on one. And yeah, the sad thing about it is the other thing I find that Nextdoor is really good for is someone made a joke this week about calling the police because there was an unfamiliar car in the neighborhood. And someone made this joke that, yeah, it must have been someone who had pulled over to text. It's like, it's a good thing we're calling the cops because it just seems to get really insular. It seems like people really start to, you know, get worried about strangers in the neighborhood. And I'm not sure I'm a fan of the next door neighborhood social media. Ken, have you found that in your neighborhood? I have to agree with you 100%. I mean, we had something happen in the neighborhood during the holidays. Somebody was uh, stealing packages off of porches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And somebody saw a car that had New York plates in the neighborhood. So I said, that was it. I said, so, and I went on and I'm like, really? So are you telling me that if I see a car with New York plates, that that guy's the guy that stole your packet? I mean, can we get a better, you know, I mean, there is, you're absolutely right. It's, it reminds me of the Twilight Zone, the monster, was it Monster on Mulberry Street? Do you remember remember that episode? I don't know. Everyone is thinking that there's an alien that lives on the street or there was a, like a UFO that crashed in the neighborhood and somebody was saying that there was an alien in the neighborhood and they all started pointing the fingers and at each other and nobody really knew there was no one there. And then I think the end of the episode was somebody is like walking by and said something that tipped them off that they were the aliens. So this is kind of, it's so inside. Can I give a good example? Yes, please. This is funny. So I was on the neighborhood community council and they were tearing down a Taco Bell and I had known it was the Taco Bell was going to be coming down because I knew that the design build company that happens to run one of the modern furniture and accessory stores, like a half a block away from my house, was going to be refurbishing and bringing in a new diner to drop on that site. So the question I asked, what's happening with the, with the, and I'd known about this for about eight months. So the question was asked on next door, what was going on with the site? And I said, well, here's what, what's going on. And I said, this is the reasons why I know what's going on. So somebody posted, said, well, actually what I heard is it's going to be a pet cemetery because there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a vet, <laughs> there's a vet right across the street. <laughs> so it's going to be a pet cemetery. And this is just total gossip, total unsubstantiated, gossip. And who, out of nowhere. And it was, no, it wasn't out of nowhere. It was being fed. Oh my God. It was being fed by the baristas across the street where they are connected <laughs> to the, to the, the to the uh, modern furniture store, which the design build companies run out of. Oh, so the baristas man. are constantly shifting the story around. And I'm That's like, hilarious. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I mean, I think as in all things, there are definitely good sides to it. You know, people are using it to, they're getting to know people. There's a beer exchange happening, which is nice, a, like a homebrew beer exchange thing. You know, that's all good stuff. But it does tend to just, to me, sow a lot of fear and make people tend to get a little more fearful and feel like 
hey, we can call the cops no matter, you know, anything we see, which it can be very frustrating. But, you know, it's good to be involved in your neighborhood. That's the sort of upshot to me is you have to get to know your neighbors. You have to be involved in what's going on in your community. It just, it's important. Yeah. And to be able to understand everyone's highly, when they feel like they're in the most safe insular setting, that they can say the things that they're most scared to say elsewhere and try to like Donna, if you're trying to convince them that maybe this other residential project in the area isn't such a bad idea to like, I mean, it just, it's an easy way to read, get the, a rhetorical reading of the of the argument being like, okay, if these are your concerns in your like most base insular way, then how can I bring those out into the real world and try to actually address them? Yeah. One of the frustrations that is happening here is that when the former proposal was in play. Neighbors had said, we don't like how tall it is. We don't like how many units there are. We don't like that there's a dumpster. These things have all been addressed, but the developer is still seeing, uh, you know, opposition. Like he's heard them. He heard them loud and clear because the developer is actually on the next door site as well. He has heard, he has responded, and he's still being told, no, we don't like it. So they keep shifting the line, huh? Yeah, they keep shifting the line. That's what city councils are for. Well, yeah, the Department of Metropolitan Development has suggested approval of this project. So it could happen. It likely could have happened. We'll see. So anyway, Ken, what are you up to besides, you know, neighborhood <laughs> interpolitics? Besides dying? I mean, a pet cemetery? Uh, really? Would people be upset about a pet cemetery? That seems like kind of a nice, peaceful use in a neighborhood. Well, I thought it would be great. It'd be a great green space along my busy street and I can walk my dog by it and say, if you don't stop acting up, this is where you're going to wind up. Exactly. Exactly. You'll be here sooner rather than later, man, Mac. And then the dog looks at you and has no idea what you're saying and only knows that you will give them dinner later. Next time you bark during the podcast, you're going across the street. (laughs) Yeah. You're going across the street. No, you're getting your ass kicked. That's what you meant by dying, right? You're getting your ass oh, kicked. Oh, well, yeah, I've got a I've got a bit of a sinus infection. I found out what my mm. limit was on on a certain beverage over the weekend. Let me see. Too much herbal tea, Ken. Too much herbal Too tea. Too much herbal tea. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, I, I was working out last week and I had to go to a, a neighborhood board meeting to present a project that with my office uh, just to kind of give them a, you know, a walkthrough regarding what's coming into their neighborhood and see if there's any funds available to any facade improvements or stuff like that. And I had to leave my uh, circuit class a little early and I didn't get to stretch. So I pulled a little bit of a groin and I went to jujitsu on Saturday, fine. And then I have tried going yesterday. And as soon as I started doing rolls, I'm like, yeah, this is it. I'm done. So I think I'm out of jujitsu for a couple of weeks, which is kind of Really? A couple of weeks? I hope your groin feels better soon. Yeah. I know. I was, I'm concerned about worst. your groin. I would rather break my arm. I swear. I was like, I was telling the guy yesterday, I said, I would rather have a broken arm. I have a pain. I've had a pain in my shoulder for about 15 years. That doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't stop me. I've got bruises all over from doing the jujitsu and nothing stopping me. This is like, forget it. Don't do anything. I'm like, it's done. So it's it's, frust- it's deeply frustrating. I stayed the entire night just to understand the moves, but it's just, it's frustrating. Architecturally, I think I talked about uh, getting some uh, my friend's project code issues out of the way. So we responded to those. So that's been kind of fun. And preparing drawings for this uh, child care Spanish immersion project I'm working on. So things are going pretty well and reading fantastic things uh, from Patrick Schumacher. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a big architectural. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. trying to understand neoliberalism and how it relates to architecture. And I think I'm getting closer to understanding it. So when we're talking about that today, you can help guide me through it. But what about you, Amelia? What are you up to? Nothing as exciting as any type of groin pulling or going to Peru or getting involved with local neighborhood spats. I wish I could say that in my exciting trip to Ikea on Saturday, I, you know, broke a leg because I was trying to valiantly lift too many flat packed pieces of furniture onto my gurney. But um, you were just trying to get into the ballroom again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you could live in Ikea. I think even in China, they were having problems with people sleeping in Ikea demos. And it's an amazing space. I mean, the jokes to to be made about Ikea are longer than any number of podcasts can cover. But there's one that I'm particularly fond of is just the idea. It's not so much a joke, just as the reality of going to Ikea is. It's different from any other shopping experience because when you go shopping, you don't look around and see everyone attempting to build a life. That's what you see when you go to Ikea is you see these people who utterly confused and a little bit scared and anxious and frustrated and irritated met all of their various family members around them trying to make decisions about which lime green couch pillow they should get. It's just an exercise in like, you are building this life and you can't have as much money as you want maybe to buy the things in that life. So you go to a place like Ikea, which is great and serves an amazing purpose and does it well. 
But it's just, it's a very strange experience to realize that when you're walking through the aisle of wine glasses and, and everyone around you is like at this very specific stage in their life that requires that they visit Ikea. So other than a social experiment or a type of anthropological survey, we got what we came for. Also, just if you're ever interested in buying or finding like dark rye bread, like Danish or German style rye bread, Ikea has a great mix. So if you ever want to get that and you can't find it in your local whatever bakery or whatever, you can actually go to the Ikea store and whatever they have, which comes in a little paper carton, it's good to go. So that was the extent of my exciting weekend. That's pretty exciting. I <laughs> I like going to Ikea. I don't know why. I just there's it's kind of like a little theme park experience. Oh, totally. Somebody a few years ago, filmed an entire soap opera miniseries inside of an Ikea. It was <laughs> oh, really? amazing. Just like different yeah. set pieces. Yeah, it's perfect. It's yeah. perfect for I that. mean, unofficially, they weren't actually granted permission, but they, they pulled it off and it was pretty great. That's awesome. So I'm going to go back to your rye bread because I tried, and this was like a year ago, I made this Icelandic geothermal bread called Rukbrau. It's a rye bread, but you traditionally would make it by putting the dough in a pot and burying it in a hot spring. You know, that Iceland oh, cool. has all these old volcanic springs. Yeah. So the way you do it in the United States, if you don't have a hot spring nearby, is to just put it in the oven on 200 degrees overnight. <laughs> Basically, it's in there for a long, 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 long time. But it's so good. And I have to admit, I mean, Ikea's got it down. You get hungry there and you have to eat. I have friends who went there to get kitchen cabinets and they ended up having two meals at Ikea because they were there so long. <laughs> they know what they're doing. I had to pick up something from Ikea recently and I got there before they were open. So they were there's only parts of Ikea that you could walk around. You couldn't go into the furniture showrooms, but the cafeteria was completely packed with families eating breakfast. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll it's, bet. A, it's like a food destination. Oh, man. I mean, I guess with little kids. I, I feel very fortunate right now that I live two and a half hours from the closest Ikea. So that's just fine with me. Yeah, they're always just enough, far enough away if you live in like a major city to know that it's a trek a little bit. It's like a special event to head out. It's always a special event going to Burbank. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> like we're the closest Ikea. But yes, it was a very, otherwise there's the best satisfaction comes from when you actually get to go home and try to build the thing, which I enjoy a lot. I'm definitely frustrated by the things that I run into in any type of flat pack production process, but it's always fun. It's always like ultimately rewarding and kind of like, oh yeah, well, it was pretty cheap. <laughs> and so you just like <laughs> move onward. And it makes you feel like you're a real builder. Yeah. You can actually build something completely that is usable. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> yeah. Ken, maybe now's a good time to test you on your neoliberal um, philosophy. Grill you. Oh, no. This will affect your grade. I didn't tell anyone, but there's actually a grade that you get for being on the podcast. And we'll, oh, we'll give you those at geez. the end of the semester. I'll fail. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so how can we possibly introduce this piece? We have our go-to stirrer of the pot, Patrick Schumacher, um, recently posted to Facebook, on his own personal Facebook, a post entitled In Defense of Stars and Icons, it's, which is basically a, a very oh, a far-arching takedown of the idea of star architecture as a bad thing and a, a way to kind of take hold of architecture criticism and how it differs in the in-crowd of the people who are involved in architecture and how they talk to each other about architecture. And how they try to communicate that to the, the rest of the world. And then also how the rest of the world communicates to itself and with itself about architecture. So Donna, I know you are valiant. You are ultimately valiant <laughs> in your involvement in this, in the comments on this thread, which have numbered, I think now into the 120s, 129 at the time of this, at this recording. So I don't know, what was your initial response to the piece? What, what kind of got you worked up to involve yourself in the conversation? Well, I mean, I have to say, I enjoy reading what Patrick writes. A lot of it, I disagree with this one. I agreed with, for the most part, I felt like it was actually a really interesting conversation to have about criticism and the role of the critics and the conversations that we have within the architecture discipline and those that we have with people outside of, the, you know, with the public, with the users of the building, but also just with people in our cities. But I especially, I think, kind of loved the article because I felt like it was being addressed entirely to Justin Schubau, the critic at Forbes, who I just cannot bear, the little twerp. He just rubs me the wrong way. And I was reading this going, yeah, take that, Justin. And of course, it wasn't directed at Justin Schubau. It was directed at the critics in the UK, in the European, at European critics. And he names a couple of, or at least one that he doesn't like. But so I really thought the sort of focus on criticism as something to discuss was valid. And I think, Ken, you agreed, right? You felt like this was a pretty good rant. I did, actually. Look, I mean, 
if we just look at Schumacher for what he is, right, and look at him as a director or a performer or any kind of a creative, we all have our own languages in which we are able to communicate with one another. And I would, you know, dare say that, you know, if when directors talk to other directors, they speak in a language that they very much understand. But when they're speaking to the public, they don't speak that way. And when I think about I try to reframe his points in that way. Then I go, well, so when Roger Ebert would talk about a movie, he has a way of understanding, but he also had a way of connecting with the director, connecting with the filmmakers and connecting with the film in a way. But he also was able to translate everything that was going on in the film in a way that made sense to the public. So it kind of distilled it down and it made it consumable for the public at large. And I think to a large degree, I think that his criticism about the critics is that they don't take the time to understand the nuances and the language of these particular groups of architects to be able to distill it down so that they can perform a necessary service, which is primarily as a conduit for delivering the message to the public at large. I mean, that's kind of my take on it. So I think in that first two paragraphs, he's probably spot on that the creation of architecture and what they do isn't going for the iconic building. It kind of, you know, that comes out of the critic and it comes out of the mass media. And that's what's created is the star system and the iconicity as he's written. So I thought pretty much was spot on. And I'm trying to get my mind around where he's going towards the end because he kind of double backs and says the star architects are created by this system but then they're necessary. And then they're only necessary because how else can clients understand what is authentic, what is valuable, and what is charlatan epigenes? Is that what it is? Epigons. 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 Okay. I had to go look up like four <laughs> words from the whole rant. So I did it. I did my due diligence. I went and looked them up. Epigon, I think is how it's pronounced. Which means, Ken, can you explain to our listeners what epigon means in case they haven't heard? If I remember correctly, it's second-rate talent. <laughs> it means a, an imitator. Yeah, like a second-rate a second-rate imitator of yeah. the original. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't go far enough for me. I, I want him to point out who the second-rate hacks are who are getting, who are stealing his work or at least posing as a parametricist in wolf's clothing or sheep's clothing. So I actually liked this piece. It was accessible to me. I liked a lot of it. Amelia, I wanted to ask you because we're ar architects. We're, you know, we have a certain take on this, but your background is not distinctly architect. In fact, you're more of a journalist. I would think of you more as a journalist and a writer and a critic. What is your attitude towards Patrick's attitude towards what critics are supposed to be doing? So I love that this comes out on Facebook because I have a mistrust of anything that is posted first and foremost to Facebook in a, from a personal view, especially for someone so highly public as, as um, Patrick Schumacher. And the fact that he's chosen this forum time and time and time again to post these rants, I think is, is quite appropriate in a way. It's not for good reason associated with like the Zaha page or a particular firm page. And while he is coming on to Archonnect under a pretty obvious pseudonym to then continue the conversation and, and to go back and forth with people, he's chosen this platform as the main point to air these ideas. And Ken, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but the idea that it may seem like he's kind of doing this casually, like that this is all you know, you can round out at the at the end and it seems like he contradicts himself and there are holes here and holes there and just like incredibly grand statements made. But at the same time, you made the comparison that this is kind of like a stand-up comic going to a, a small club. That small club may be the world's major network of Facebook, but still it's a casual enough atmosphere for him to be able to throw something out, get, you know, a lot of attention for it and then, you know, take back that attention and maybe use it to his advantage later. So I don't want to give him too much credit for whatever he's doing here if he has some great strategy about how he deploys his polemics. But I think that I just enjoyed reading stuff like this because I think it's kind of this perfect set for Facebook. It's designed to kind of provoke people. I should have known this term far, far earlier, but the in journalism, the term hot take is like the idea that you something that is posted in order to particularly get people's quick and very passionate responses to. So it's not quite the same as clickbait. It's not just to get people to respond or, or to click. It's to encourage someone to quickly have to take a side in a obvious debate. So Patrick, like applause, you're just completely handling the hot takes super well. And your 129 comments and counting are going to attest to that. So I see this more as like him in his very, already very comfortable voice of getting very argumentative very quickly and very polemic very quickly, having a chance to kind of air these ideas out 
and maybe at some point bring them back up later, which, you know, <laughs> it's and then it gets, of course, picked up by everyone else. So there's a total domino effect of like him posting it on Facebook is in no way a vacuum. And then it gets it gets like kind of dominoed from there. But that's where the interesting stuff starts to happen. Yeah, I agree. And I would say that 129 comments on Archonnect, a lot of them are not specifically about the article, but they're just a general conversation about architecture as well, which I think is great. Uh, I mean, I think there's a really interesting reading and comments to be made about Patrick's topic of critics and the role of critics within architecture. But the fact that the conversation on Archonnect ended up being just also about how we build today, how architects role in society, how, you know, what kind of buildings people like. I mean, it ended up being very, very much just a, a broad discussion of architecture and what we think about as architects. So, you know, that he put something out there that he knows people will respond to. Although I do, I had not thought of it as a, as a hot take and I did just learn that term myself. So I think you're exactly right. That's what it is. He puts it out there and you really feel like compelled to pick a side, to plant your flag. So how does that serve him to do, I mean, if it's a hot take, I mean, it gets, it gets a response from, from 129 people on, on, on Archonnect and, and 100 or whatever, or 50 or so comments on his Facebook page. What's the point of a hot take though? I think it's just kind of the incarnate format for Patrick because he's a polarizer. He just, he does a thing and then people are like, oh, this is great. I get something to fight about. It's very quick. And I think that especially because of the new nature of new media criticism and the idea that, oh yeah, everybody's a critic when you're able to post the picture of the building to Instagram or whatever. You kind of miss an opportunity there to talk about criticism as being completely different for architecture as it is for something like a mass media thing, like um, Ken, you brought up earlier Roger Ebert and something that is like, like a film that is intended to be shown to people and it's experienced in the same way as the critic. The critic watches it, the consumer watches it. But with architecture here, we have like a completely different, both critical background and also the way it's being consumed. So there's, I think in, in the comments in Archonnect, there was a topic brought up about like the, the way critics involve themselves in the lives of their subjects and whether or not that's like a valid way to go about criticism or not. And like, depending on how good of a critic you are, does that mean you know more about the product, but you are not involved in the world of that product because you have to retain some type of critical distance or so? So I thought that was a really interesting kind of side issue that arose from the conversation was like, how literally, how should the critic, if uh, the, the critics that Patrick is talking about in this piece, should they respond to him? I don't, I'm not saying that because I have an answer. I'm just saying that to see what it would be. What is the relationship between him and the critics at this point? No, I think, and that's kind of been my question all along, is that it would seem, I mean, and I posed this question to Donna before, that art critics and, I mean, was it Clement Greenberg? I mean, didn't he spend a lot of time with uh, Jackson Paul? I mean, there's a lot of critics that spend a lot of time with the modern painters, and they spend a lot of time understanding their process and what they were thinking about, and they still wrote in a way that was critical. They, they wrote still awesome critiques of the work, but they were still, the, there was a respect, there was a mutual respect. And I get his point in that, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, I mean, I don't know what Blair Kamen or some of the other writers in the States, their backgrounds are, but I think Ellis Woodman is the one he refers to in his piece. I think he, he comes from, a, I think he has an architecture background. So he should, you know, I think it, it is incumbent upon, and I think Roger Ebert, if you, you know, you look at a lot of his writings and I've watched his documentary, he had a real deep connection with a lot of the directors and he didn't, because of that relationship, it wasn't, his, his critiques weren't any less pointed, especially when it came to people that he admired. I mean, and Scorsese was one that pointed out in the, in the documentary that it was, he particularly was particularly critical about one film and, you know, Scorsese went back and looked at it again. He said, he's absolutely right. So I think in some regard that there is something missing from architecture criticism when there isn't that kind of discussion happening between the critic, the, the one communicating the information to the broader public and the architect himself. And that's my take on it. So, I mean, it sounds to me like a very rough takeaway from the, the essay. It to me is architects should do their work and they don't really have to explain it because critics are supposed to. Like architects don't have to have that direct explanation to the public because there should be critics that are willing to take that task on for the architect. So, you know, Amelia, to me, that's you right. Are, are, are you expecting, you know, can someone just throw 
I'm going to pick the first thing that popped to mind, which I actually loved, which was this mothership in Detroit, the mothership mobile DJ pod in Detroit. It's Afrofuturist. I mean, if someone just threw that at you as here's some here's some pictures of it. Now you explain it. Wouldn't that frustrate you? Wouldn't you feel like that's forcing you to do a job that's not really yours and that the creator should really give you something to respond to as a critic. Absolutely. I think that there's a very fine line that any critical person or any critic has to draw between deciding how much information of context and history they're going to involve versus how much information of individual intent and individual personality that is attached to the project. So star architecture is all about adding this personality aspect. It's about like not only assuming that the piece is important because of the art historical or the architectural historical context that it fits into, but because of the personality and the stature of the person doing it. I think of someone like Damien Hirst mm-hmm. is a great example of yeah. something like this. It's like, if a dude put a shark in formaldehyde <laughs> and then showed it to you, you would not respond to it unless you knew that. I mean, my guess is there would be many different responses to it, but the first wouldn't be, I will pay however many millions of dollars for that, unless you knew that it was surrounded in this very specific art historical context. And that's what makes it significant. So that's kind of a very um, kind of blunt way to put it. But just to say that you need to have some very specific context, but you should be uh, careful of imbuing too much personal history into anything. And that's also like my personal opinion in this. And that's something that is an ongoing critical discussion, deeply rooted one about how much of the authorial intent do you put into a piece of work? And do you determine it's successful based on how well that intent comes off? Because say if like in a parametric account, the intent is to let parametrics run its course in its way. So like, how do you adapt that? And it's something that, you, you know, yeah, like I, I never have a definitive answer to because you also as a journalist never, you should never go into something knowing you thinking you already know what it is. That's probably the a major problem in any type of architectural criticism is like, oh, a Zaha project. <laughs> I know what that is. Like, I know how to say what the people will understand as criticism of that thing will be. So it's, yeah, it's a constant back and forth. But I actually, because I have done the majority of my journalistic writing on Arconnect, and so I'm very like, that is my wheelhouse, but Patrick clearly chooses Facebook. And Paul, maybe you could weigh in a little bit here about how those two platforms necessarily differ from one another and just what types of conversations you see happening on one, but not the other. Well, I'm really curious about his decision to use Facebook for these opinion pieces that he always posts, because Facebook has kind of established a reputation of being the lowest bar when it comes to like intelligent discussion, intelligent feedback. So it makes me wonder, like, maybe this is an intentional because basically Patrick's like typical process when he posts these pieces is he posts them on Facebook and then he starts commenting where the real comments are happening. And that's usually on Arconnect. So it makes me wonder, like, why not start on Arconnect? I don't think he necessarily wants to. I think he wants to hit that lowest common denominator and, and get some like interesting, in quotes, feedback on that, you know, and see what happens. I mean, it's kind of, it's more of an experiment, I think, posting on Facebook. It's definitely not going to produce reliable, productive discussion on Facebook. It's going to go somewhere else. I would say from reading what Facebook comments under it, I have read, you're absolutely correct. There's a lot of disciples and then a lot of people just saying, you know, the bullshit kind of Facebook comments that you would expect. Yeah, people don't go on a Facebook to think. Yeah, I think people go on Twitter to think. People go on uh, Medium to think, but Facebook is not a thinking place. Facebook is like, uh, you know, kittens and and photos and, you know, take a break for your brain kind of place. And it almost feels to me like he's more sophisticated than that. Like he would be more sophisticated than using Facebook because, you know, every grandma is on Facebook now. That's why I think it's intentional. Yeah. I know that Ken... I don't know if that was part of our recording or not, but Ken made a point that, you know, maybe he's treating this like a comedian doing some, you know, test runs to see what kind of to test the crowd and see what the reaction's like before taking it to a more official venue. Yeah, I mean, that that could be true. Or maybe he's just bored and wants to ruffle feathers. I think that's a very realistic definitely, theory. Definitely. It seems as if we've hit kind of like a predictable schedule, too. Like there was a, what was the last rant he had posted about? It was like a month or so ago. About uh, no government yes. funding for art school. No yes. public funding for art school. So I only became aware of this one at five o'clock on Friday, my time. So basically I was just not in the frame of mind to comment on it. Then I started thinking, wait, if he just put this up, that means it's like 10 o'clock at night in London. You know, is he just drinking? Is he just he's out <laughs> having drinking and is like, oh, I have this idea about critics and just starts typing? Well, and also historically, that's when you release things that you don't want people to read. 
I mean, that's, that's when, that's when, uh, you know, governments (laughs) release horrible statements, you know, they, they want everybody to enjoy their weekend and come back starting new. But I don't know if that was his intention. I think it might've been more booze fueled potentially, (laughs) (laughs) potentially, who knows? But I have to say though, I haven't read this and I haven't read the comments. So whatever I'm saying about, you know, his choice of Facebook as a venue has nothing to do with the actual words. I think it's good, though, that we're not trying to take this as a fully complete piece and therefore debate its individual points as if Patrick has made this airtight argument. Because, I mean, when someone puts together something so hot takey, it's kind of like it's just another hot take to try to do too much to assume it's absolutely fully formed and then and interpret it as such. So, like, I, I think it's important that we consider this, like, first and foremost as a as a piece of like new media happening, like this is a thing that happens and we kind of have to deal with it, but not think that, oh, like here's this thing that Patrick has been sitting on since 2010 and he finally got the courage to just put it out there and like it's been so finely crafted and we can finally induct it into the canon. It's like nothing like that. And I have to say that I think it's awesome. You know, I I wish that more architects would publicly voice their opinions, whether, you know, their opinions are, are brilliant or horrible utilizing different mediums, you know, like, like Facebook and Twitter. And, and I mean, I think that we're architects tend to be really far behind in getting the word out and taking advantage of, of different social media opportunities. I absolutely agree. I think one of the first comments on Archonnect was, boy, I wish more architects would talk like this and do this, just put their attitudes out there and make it part of the conversation. Yeah, themselves too, instead of, because what most architecture firms are doing is they're just hiring some 18 year old right out of high school to manage their social media, like as if it's not important. Right. And that is what's so appealing about this is that it feels very honest. It does feel very honest, like this is what his thoughts on it are. But I also have to say, though, props to Archonnect because Nicholas Crody's write-up was fantastic of it, his write-up on Archonnect. And that's the other thing is I think Patrick knows he can put this on Facebook and then Archonnect and Dezine and everyone else will pick it up, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So then the serious commentary, as you say, can happen in places like here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact that, that Patrick comes back and engages with the community in response, regardless of how harshly they're criticizing him, that yes. I give him full props yeah. for. Because I've had many writers that have written pieces for, for Archonnect that have straight out said, I don't read the comments. I don't care what people think. And I don't really support that idea. You know, I think that if you have something to say, regardless of what the feedback is, it's worth paying attention. And to get involved in that discussion, I have a lot of respect for that because it can be hard to get involved in some of these online discussions. Yeah. I'm still- <laughs> yes, it sure can. <laughs> what, Amelia, you're still recovering from something? <laughs> no, no, Ken, I, I can hear the like um, the wind in the shell or the the, the sea in the, in the shell that is Ken's frustration. So maybe, Ken, what are you thinking? Oh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just find it disturbing. I mean, like, I find it that people would just put stuff out there for my consumption and not, not really want to engage it. It's just like, well, then why do I, then I'll just, just tell me who you are and I'll stop reading you because, you know, I'd like to have a dialogue with you. I mean, that's kind of what this profession is about. It's about helping other people understand what it is you're trying to get across and help me understand what your thinking is. And I mean, we did this in school. I mean, we walk people through our projects, we walk people through our thinking and it's frustrating. So, you know, that's what's so nice about this is that, you know, like Donna said, and he took a chance, he's putting stuff out there and not letting someone editorialize it and putting it in a book form and waiting six years for it to come out. Out. It's kind of out there right in our view and, you know, we're teeing off on it. No, totally. And it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I think that we really just, I'm all for this happening and that it exists in the world and whatever we have to say about the nitty gritty points, I think we're all agreed that we are appreciative that Patrick does stuff like this and that it's kind of a, a card that other firms could take at least to have that level of engagement and honesty trying to put yourself out there as a as a person in the field and not just as a architectural icon or architectural business. I think there's a lot of archie business speak that gets thrown around in in means of like, you know, could be algorithmically created and no one would know the difference. So Yeah, we could talk about this topic forever. Until they make the Patrick Schumacher bot, which I I'm sure they're working on, then um <laughs> we we need you. <laughs> Nice. Well done, Amelia. Exactly. Bring it full circle. (laughs) The concept of an AI, of an AI Patrick Schumacher, of a parametric Patrick Schumacher. In a silver tracksuit. Ooh. (laughs) Listening to Kraftwerk. Isn't that what he wore at the USC? 
lecture oh, that he, he was, joined with, with Zaha? There was something where he, yeah, he was, it was some giant, giant overflowing auditorium public speaking thing with Zaha and, and Patrick Schumacher. And he, he was wearing some, looked like he had come from the gym. I think was the really? was the criticism. I, I didn't attend. But it was I, metallic I was not, and shiny. That's well. Was, that's so the so the future gym or yes, the space gym. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the, the AI one. The right. AI exactly. One. Well, I mean, we have to face that Zaha is the best dresser in the architecture discipline, bar none. So you know he can ride on her coattails, whatever he wears. She's <laughs> she's going to look fantastic no matter what. So true. Tracksuit's fine. <laughs> So are we done with wonderful, no, wonderful Patrick? We're never no? done with him. No, he's never done with us. That's for sure. We're never done with him. And that's good. To be continued. <laughs> to be continued. Perfect. We hope. To be continued. The rest of this episode, we just wanted to use the rest of my interview with um, Kevin Roche. And it's pretty short. So I hope you enjoy. We left off last I spoke with Roche. We're talking about how humans decide to build cities, what their basic intentions are, how they just decide or have an urge to gather and build in a certain format. And Roche shares his thoughts on that and his views on sprawl. So let's listen to the rest of that. So I think that that's a little depressing. <laughs> well, I guess it, it depends on what your assumption of the base human intention is, or the base human default is, whether it's to disperse and re rely on oneself and have space and independence, or if it's a kind of tribalism where people will form, inevitably form cities because they seek that physical closeness and that physical closeness becomes manifest in whatever structures allow that closeness to happen. Um, and in a way, you could say that, that that's what might have allowed for the more diverse collection of societies that you see in a prehistorical era of, of people who are nomadic or people, or more at least, as we still, of course, have that now, but more presence of people who are living different lifestyles according to where they lay their head. So either they live in a city or they live on a farm or they live in complete isolation on an island or they live in a nomadic scenario or a constant migratory scenario. So I think it's a quite fascinating idea of what you presume the basic human intention is in terms of society, whether that's to gather or to disperse. And I think before it was very easy to kind of knock on the um, or chide the idea of dispersion as a kind of implicit encouragement of sprawl. What it is we allow ourselves when we when we can do anything we want is to sprawl. <laughs> we get we get our own space and we get open areas and independence. And if you associate those ideas with sprawl, and one in particular instance of of um, suburban sprawl development that we've seen around one of your projects, the College Park pyramids in Indianapolis, how that kind of maybe wasn't you could not have predicted the extent to which it happened in the afterthought or in the aftermath. So. Maybe in, an, in a current context, in the 21st century, how do you see suburban sprawl? What is its role to play in the urban system, if any? Well, I, I tend towards tribalism. I don't think we can all just go off and live in the woods by ourselves. I'm not sure that's the most productive way to do it. So I think we do depend on each other. We do depend on communities. But we don't necessarily, when you get, you know, six million people together in one spot, that doesn't mean that it's really a community. You know, you can only participate in a small part of that. And that doesn't mean they all have to be together. But I, I think, the, you know, we're not addressing this basic problem, which you pointed out. You know, what we're, what is happening is what's driving the whole thing is not, what's driving the whole thing is commerce. And commerce has a limited vision. And that vision has nothing to do with humanity or the human spirit or the human mind or the human aspiration other than aspiration is making money, but putting that aside, it's, it is simply a something that's driving us into the communities that we have now, but those are not, that's not necessarily the best way to go. And if we could get people thinking along the other line, you know, rather than just making money, if there were some other, if there was another vision. Of course, you can't blame people for wanting to do that because they're at a disadvantage, relatively speaking, with other people. The other person has a certain amount of money, and so why can't I have it? You know, he's got a car and I don't have a car, or whatever, whatever, whatever. But none of that is really fundamental 
to the human spirit and to the purpose of the human existence, I think. And we have never, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is we never look beyond the immediate need for shelter and for commerce and for food. And we, we have the opportunity, we have the ability, we have the ways that we could look beyond that, but we don't. As a consequence of which, you know, we find ourselves in all of these funny situations right now. Where would you say is there an ideal community? And why are we constantly at war somewhere on the earth? You know, why is that? What is wrong with us that we can't seem to get on with each other? What I was going to try to bring that as the opportunity to say that perhaps the two artificial binaries that we've built up for the purpose of this conversation of the tribalist factions and the purely independent just scattering, whether the those two are completely false ends of the binary, if you imagine that the city can exist, just there's no reason to it, for it to exist based on economic reasons. There's no economic impetus to form cities. If that's true, if for some imagined future scenario that becomes true, then not only what would those cities look like, would we still have cities and, and what would they be for or what advantages would they offer if not that type of economic impetus? And I think it's a fascinating question when we do have emerging technologies that allow it to increasingly be that way. And if it trickles down into other things like simply access to food and services and base level healthy amount of socializing uh, with other humans, then we're on the precipice of a fascinating typological development of what a city could look like. And I doubt that it will look like the uh, dystopic vertical stacks that we imagine the only way density can continue is in some type of ridiculous vertical three-dimensional expansion where it's no longer sprawling out, but it's sprouting up, I suppose. So this is more of a perhaps personal and personality-driven question about as an architect and as this idea we have of architects who have to have this vast generalist almost knowledge about any project they're involved in and the world that they inhabit. How do you manage creative inspiration? What are the other activities that you find most conducive to inspiring or complementing the process of designing architecture? As I was saying at the outset, uh, you dig into it and it becomes almost an obsession, uh, you know, to find out all of the facts and all of the reasons for whatever it is you're working on, for his reasons for being. And that in itself becomes very, very interesting because you just, you know, if it's a museum, you get to inevitably... Uh, such as working at the Met and all of that. I got involved in all of those cultures from Egypt, you know, Syrian and modern and everything. And I really learned an awful lot. I mean, it was a huge education for me that you get in and try to understand every aspect of it and why it happened and why it's there. And the same is true for almost any any, any kind of building that you do. If it's a religious building, you delve into all of the aspects of the religion. If we did, a, we did a Jewish museum, I got very involved in Jewish culture and learned a great deal about that. And we're doing a memorial for the victims of the Holocaust, so I did a lot of research on that. So it, it spans over an enormous range of things and becomes absolutely fascinating. And as you dig in deeper and deeper, you know, ideas begin to form and suddenly you it happens suddenly you have an idea uh, and you could be doing anything the the ford foundation building i remember years and years ago i worked and worked and worked on and i couldn't put it all together and then i was driving to work one morning and then i know exactly the spot on the bridge that i was going over when it just hit me suddenly what we should do and how to do it you know, just suddenly like that. And that has happened almost invariably with every project. You know, that you just have, you fill your mind up with all of the aspects of it, and then you kind of go to bed and your mind keeps working and solves the problem for you. So it isn't so much that you as a person solve it, it's that this gift of a brain which you have really takes it all on and sorts through it 
is it like a giant computer and comes out, spits out an answer in the most improbable times. Well, that was really great. I think that it was such an honor to have a 92-year-old Pritzker Prize winner that is still as sharp as a tack share some of these like real gems uh, with us. You know, these stories and this the insight that he has into the industry is so invaluable. I really recommend that anybody who hasn't read or hasn't listened to to both parts of this interview to go ahead and do so. Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. And I was so lucky to be able to talk to him. And his, yeah, I, I think I said this on the last episode, but man, that guy just has like the thoughts in his head are just set in a perfectly straight line. And he just starts at the beginning and just flows through and it just builds this completely coherent, totally well thought out thread of, of all of his thoughts. And he's had a lot of time and a lot of experience to kind of draw together into his ideas. So it was, it was such a great interview and such an honor to be able to talk to him. Yeah, it was beautiful to hear him speak and just to, as you said, hear how well formed all his thoughts were. And as I was listening, I kept just writing down little tidbits, little things that he said that I thought were so, so germane to our practice as architects and as humans in this world. So definitely everyone go listen to it if you haven't yet. Yeah, I think I'm still reminded of his comments about modern architects that he worked with in the uh, mid-century and their connection to their clients and site and kind of um, that those still resonate with me, that those are still topics that we're talking about today that they really haven't changed regardless of uh, whatever style you happen to be working in. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So any endorsements this week? Yes, I have a gigantic and very hearty endorsement for the Dean's List we did with Michael Speaks, the Dean of the Syracuse Architecture, Architecture School at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. Michael is fantastic to talk to, incredibly thoughtful and always critical of everything going on around him in a way that you rarely find in someone who's managed to occupy such high levels of, of uh, institutional authorities in architecture academia. I don't mean that other architects in education are not critical. I just mean that Speaks is very self-critical and very aware of his position and his influence in these types of positions. And he has proved before that he's an amazing dean in a prior uh, deanship at the University of Kentucky. And he's now about, I believe, a year or so into this deanship at Syracuse and at that very, the very beginning of that deanship, Paul and I actually had a chance to talk with him in person when he was in LA attending some event at SciArc. And we got to hear his thoughts on Syracuse and what his role at the school would be. And then now, a year and a half later, this dean's list comes out after so much more reflection and um, actual action at the school. And so it was a really fantastic time to be able to talk to him. And, and he delivered a really great dean's list. So I encourage everyone to go check that out. And please, if even if you don't read the whole thing, scroll all the way down to the bottom because there's a treat, <laughs> a, a, an image treat that I was tickled by. So check that out. I loved it. I loved it so much. I know. I know Michael from when he was at UK and um, he is just amazing. He's got an amazing mind and the work he's doing at Syracuse. When I was reading that article, I just, I wanted to like drop everything and go back to get another master's degree at Syracuse because <laughs> it sounds like such an amazing program. Coincidentally, Leanne Chang, our good friend, posted in the Arconnect forums recently a question about, um, the question was, what if there was a website like Tinder, but for architecture schools? And the intent, the notion was that it would be a, a sort of gathering of information about various schools and that students could either say yes or no, that they like this or not. And I feel like the Dean's List is this amazing resource for all of these students we get constantly on Arconnect saying, you know, what school should I go to? I'm thinking about 10 different ones and I they, they're looking for advice. And the Dean's List uh, series really answers so many of those kinds of questions about what various schools are like. So I would love for Leanne to do a, some kind of website that would allow that. But in the meantime, I think everyone can just read these Dean's List articles. Yeah, I've known Michael since SciArc back in uh, the late 90s. And I remember at the time he was just, he was what was making me so excited about the school. He's just such a smart guy. He's so engaged He's so aware. He's so aware. He's so um, interested in in opening up the the field of architecture and bringing in people from all other areas and exploring education in a way that I think many or most academics are not. So I think anybody that has the opportunity to to work with him or learn under him is is very lucky. I have one endorsement 
a little one. There's a house on the website right now by Bromley Caldari Architects in New York. And it's a renovation of an A-frame house on Fire Island, I think. And um, it's just an absolutely lovely project. And um, just be, I've always loved A-frames. I've always thought the A-frame as a house form, especially for like a vacation house, is the perfect form. Um, maybe because I always think of vacation houses being somewhere where there's a lot of snow. And so it just slides right off the A-frame. But this is just a really lovely... Everything about the the views to the water, the way the interior space is handled, and it's it's contemporary, but also has this sort of, you know, throwback 70s vibe of the A-frame. It's a really nice project. So yeah, I just really liked it. I'm also thinking a lot about vacation homes lately because I'm designing one. So so that's my endorsement. Bromley Caldari Architects. It looks it looks like a really nice project. Cool. Um, I have a couple endorsements. One is the Chicago Architecture Biennial has just announced the participants, which is a really exciting list of architects that many of us have heard of and many of us have not heard of, which is even more exciting to see new names like that. One of the names on that list is uh, Jimenez Lai, who was on the podcast recently. Recently, I forget which episode it was, but uh, it was a good show. Go back and listen to it if you haven't. Great show. That was a great interview. I would like to say we actually have at least three people from this lineup that have been on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And we've only done 25 episodes. Bjarka, Bjarka Ingalls, and Andres Hake from Office for Political Innovation. So we've got three. Okay. So we've got like a few months to get the rest. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, speaking of Jimenez Lai... Arconnect is going to be hosting a book launch for his new treatise publication here in Los Angeles at Neutra's VDL house in Silver Lake. And that's going to be happening May 2nd. And it's, uh, we don't have all the details figured out yet. We will be announcing the party very soon. But for those of you that have listened to this show till the very end, we want you there especially if you're in LA. If you're not flying, you know, weather's great right now. (laughs) But it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a party. There's going to be drinks. There's going to be books for sale. These books look really cool too. And the house, it's Neutra's VDL house. If you haven't visited that house, it's uh, it's an amazing house where Neutra experimented on uh, all of the different building techniques and experimental ways of, of living that he then uh, applied to his rich clients' houses. So yeah, it's going to be a probably a late afternoon to evening party. People can go out for dinner after. There's a lot of great restaurants and it's going to be a lot of fun. So watch out for that. Speaking of houses, New York Times, the marriage section, whatever it is with the New York Times weddings, they had Barbara Bester's wedding, yes. another podcast oh, guest. Yeah. At the Silvertop House. And it was at Silvertop, yeah. at the Silvertop House by Lautner. It looked amazing. And I usually, yeah, I'm usually just not a fan of those New York Times wedding things, but this one was so awesome looking and it just looked like a great party and uh barbara's amazing so yeah she was one of our very early guests yeah and we talked pretty much exclusively it was about her having just landed the renovation of the silver top so maybe just throwing it out there it would be a great opportunity to peruse those photos while also listening to that early podcast episode (laughs) where she explains like her approach to the house and stuff i even believe the the title for that new york times piece was like the bride looks stunning and the house does too or something yeah something like that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the kind of strange NY Times uh, syntax, but yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful photos. Yeah. So congratulations to Barbara. Yes. Exactly. Ken, do you have any endorsements? Just two quick ones. I wanted to second everyone else's or third. <laughs> the uh, the Michael Speaks piece was uh, fantastic. I think it really highlighted the differences that I kind of um, was talking about between um, uh, the school I went to in New Jersey and NJIT and uh, Syracuse. And I think there was always a sense that uh, NJIT and Syracuse were competitors. And um, you could see the real differences in the programs just by from that interview. And so I was really pleased to see what kind of uh, what they're doing there at the school. I only wanted to pump this one blog blog post by, I think, Joan Liu, Always Poop at Work. I think it was kind of it was a cute, <laughs> fun little, and very enlightening about how much money I could, uh, you know, make by pooping. By spending time at work pooping. Yeah, it so. was a, it was a really good blog post. And and Paul, to your comments earlier, Joan or Joanne, she came back and spoke in the comments and was like, "Great, I love this conversation that started up, you guys. So good for her coming back into the comments." I will have to check that out. I have not yet seen that. That is it's quite an imperative. I'm saving that read for the toilet. (laughs) Oh, of course. It had to happen. All right. Well, I think that's our show for this week. Thanks to everybody who listened. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out to us on Twitter with hashtag ArcConnectSessions or send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. 
If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And uh, thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Until next week. See you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, you guys.